You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage Change Recovery Podcast. If this is your first time meeting me, my name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame. I've been clean and sober for 16 years. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, interventionist, and the co-founder of a telehealth company called Lion Rock Recovery that provides substance use disorder treatment. Cassie, that's for you. All right. Today, I am here with my producer, Scott. We are doing a Q&A episode. Scott, what is going on? What are we doing today? We got a, a tough one today. We got... And tough, I think, partially because we're going to ask it in kind of a broad way. And we're going to do that intentionally so that hopefully we can come up with a lot of good ideas. So our question for today is, why do I keep relapsing? Can you reflect back on a relapse experience that maybe you had yourself? Sure. So I think it's really important to start with the fact that relapse is not an event. It's a process. The relapse, whatever that looks like, whatever the bottom line behavior is that you're committed not to doing, that happens after typically a whole string, a whole process goes on. And that's a really important and useful thing to know because you can stop the process. It's harder to stop an event. Theoretically, it's much more in motion. Whereas a process, you can stop it anywhere along the way. Okay. So I'm living in Prescott, Arizona. I'm 18 years old. I have a roommate who has relapsed and I'm trying to help her, right? I'm I'm trying to help her. She's from Portugal and I'm trying to get her on a plane to Portugal, which is leaving out of Las Vegas. I drive her to a friend in Havasu, which is kind of a party town where we had another friend who was sober. And we got there, turned out that friend was not sober. So we stayed there overnight. I'm still sober. And then my job is to get her to Las Vegas on this plane to Portugal so that she can go back and get to her son where she can get sober again. All of this is is really around this idea that I'm helping, that I'm sober, that we're all sober, that I'm trying to get her back to her son, what have you. I'm not thinking about drinking. We get to Las Vegas and we didn't make it in time for the plane. And my family had told me, don't go to Las Vegas for this. I I mean, I went to Vegas a lot sober, but for whatever reason, there was they didn't think this was a good idea. And so when I got there and we kind of ran out of money, my ego was too big to reach out for help and say, hey, we're stuck in Las Vegas. I need help. I'm here with her. She's a mess. She's loaded. What do we do? And we we get a hotel room. And as we are going to this big... Anybody who's been to Vegas a lot will know what it's called, but I, I can't remember. I want to say it's Senor Frogs, but it's a it's like this Mexican restaurant and it has these margarita glasses that are literally a foot and a half. And so we go there to eat. And I decide that because in my head, the thought passes through that because it's a margarita, because it's a mixed drink and I drank straight from a bottle, I won't get drunk. So I order said margarita and continue to get drunk. And that was how the drinking started. And it was a fabulous disaster Um, (laughs) between the two of us trying to get out of Vegas. uh, She didn't get... We we couldn't... We were such 
disasters we could, I like, we didn't even get her back on a plane. We ended up back in Arizona. So what happens is you have all these things happen, right? It's like, it's a, it's a process. You, you lower your guard, you change, your thinking starts to get wobbly. You're around, you know, you go somewhere where the opportunity is there. And the next thing you know, it happens. I love that. I think that's really interesting. Maybe it's really obvious in hearing that story, but I'm wondering if there's a way that you can kind of apply some of those processes to like the steps in that story, because I don't think to just the, you know, casual observer that they're all super obvious as far as like totally. what they are. And almost like we can say, Set this up as a little choose your own adventure, right? So it's like exactly if I had gotten here and I had done this, can you can you walk us through that same story, at least at the points where you were at a, I don't know, an intersection where things could have gone differently? So in that particular situation, my recovery was not super strong. Okay. So I wasn't like crazy taking care of myself. I wasn't sober very long. I didn't have a great, like super strong sober community. So my recovery was still in its infancy in terms of where I was at that point. And there was a lot of chaos going on. I also didn't have a lot of life skills, like general life skills. I was very stunted because I spent so many years in institutions. So I didn't know how to do a lot of things. I mean, I literally didn't know how to turn on or pay utilities. I didn't know how to open a bank account. I mean, I literally didn't know how to do a lot of things. I had some weird ass other skills, but like <laughs> resourceful, not, certainly. I, I did not understand how things worked. So it was like, and I was 18, having been institutionalized for over two years, and I was living on my own. It was not a situation where I was really capable of going and being around people who were heavily using, heavily chaotic. I went by myself. So where would I? So let's say, let's say that um, my parents were like, "Do not do that," right? And my boyfriend was like, "Do not do that." And you know, as I do, say, "Screw you, I'm doing this," right? So. <laughs> Let's just say that that was, let's just say I was going to do it anyway. You would have brought a sober friend. Here I am going into the lion's den with other people who are loaded. I'm putting myself at risk. So I, you know, would have either not gone or put or gotten someone to come with me. This, we could have started this from like three months before this incident. <laughs> but like, let's just say we're going to start it at the incident. I'm trying to rescue her because that gives me the feeling of value. And that's, you know, one of my things is I'm a rescuer, right? So I'm trying to rescue her. And so there were there are ways to make doing someone a favor and taking them somewhere safe. And I did not do any of those things. And then theoretically, my ego was such that I could like called my parents and said, Hey, I'm stuck in Vegas. And we're going to have to get in some trouble to make our way home. Guys, can you help me out? And they would have been like, yeah, Yeah. you know, whatever. It would have been a non-issue, but I had too much pride. And so all of those things, right? And it could have started months before that, where it's like this person, I'm trying to save her because she has a son, because I'm invested, because I'm getting sucked into drama and sucked into other people. And like, because I feel so deeply. So there's all sorts of things. I didn't know how to protect my energy. I didn't know where to put my energy. I didn't have enough going on that I could just drive to have like, you know, it was so many different things about where I was in that moment. And I did none of them, like literally none of them. And when faced with the opportunity, you know, my brain goes back to, and I want to read you something real quick that pertains to what I just was talking about. This is a little bit of fun neuroscience. I'm a bit of a neuroscience nerd, but I promise 
because it won't be too bad. I'll try to make it really not boring for you. Just read it in like an Irish accent. I think that will help. This is from The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Okay. When researchers played a loud intrusive noise... Mice that had been raised in a warm nest with plenty of food scurried home immediately. But another group raised in a noisy nest with scarce food supplies also ran for home, even after spending time in more pleasant surroundings. Scared animals return home, regardless of whether home is safe or frightening. And he goes on to talk in this book, which is fantastic if you haven't read it, called The Body Keeps the Score. So when our brain's alarm system is turned on, it is automatically triggers, it automatically triggers this pre-programmed physical escape plan, which is held in the oldest part of our brain. Okay. So the nerves and chemicals that make up our basic brain structure have direct connections to our body. So when that old brain takes over, it partially shuts down our higher brain, our conscious mind, and propels our body to run, hide, fight, or on occasion, freeze. So like if you are standing in the middle of the street and a car is coming at you, unless there is something deeply, deeply wrong with your brain, you, as that car comes at you, you will move your body. Or if you put your hand on a hot flame, you will recoil. It's pre-programmed into your brain. Well, that is the part of the brain that addiction takes a hold of. And so when that pre-programming is triggered, by the time we are fully aware of our situation, our body may already be on the move. Like for me, that pre-programming was chaos, trying to save people. I mean, even in abusive relationships, I was typically trying to save the person. I was not using, but I was still in the chaos. I was still hanging out with chaotic people who were doing chaotic things. And that's all about those mice going home to the chaotic nest. Like That's what I knew. It was what I was comfortable with. And all of that stuff led me back into the margarita relapse, which was not pretty. Nope. Well, and I think that's an interesting way of putting it, comparing it to home like that. Maybe from the outside, it doesn't appear that way. It's like, well, why are you running back into that? You're running back into the burning building. What are you doing, dude? And you're like, well, that's my it's home. Warm. It's warm in there. <laughs> yeah, it's warm, guys. Well, because I, I know what to do in a burning building. I don't know what to do when I'm just supposed to function like a normal. I'm fantastic in crisis. I am your girl. It is like the day-to-day brushing your teeth, making your bed, paying your bill, like that shit, I really struggle. But when there's an emergency or high intensity, I'm great because my brain locks into that and is totally engaged. And it kind of, my brain sort of bumbles around with all the other stuff. It's just harder. And so eventually in recovery, you do figure out how to have a life and figure that out. But I remember people would say to me early on, like, don't you want to be happy? Don't you want calm, serenity? And I remember thinking, no. like, I, <laughs> it wasn't even that. I like literally didn't know. I go, I don't know what that feels. I don't have any basis of comparison, right? So you're asking me the theory of wanting something, right? Is that somehow I have an understanding of what it would feel like, or I've made up something about what it would feel like or what it is, or I have some desire, some fantasy, some pull. 
when people said to me, do you want to be happy? I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. Like I didn't understand. I thought happy was we have enough drugs. So yeah, I'd love to be happy. Do you, can you provide that for me? <laughs> do you have enough for everyone? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that is... So when you don't have any understanding, when people are offering you something you simply don't even understand, it's hard to overcome all of the things pulling you in the other direction. There's also something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome, pause. And post-acute withdrawal syndrome is what happens after the acute withdrawal, which is depending on what the chemicals you're putting in your body are, you know, can be quite severe. And your brain is an incredible place and it adapts to whatever you're doing to it. So all of the drugs that you're putting, drugs and alcohol you're putting into it, it's going to adapt to that. So if you're if you're forcing your brain to create a ton of a certain neurochemical, your brain will go, oh, we don't need any more of that. And it'll stop creating it, right? It'll stop making it itself and all sorts of iterations of that. And so when you stop taking drugs, it takes a while for your brain to go, oh, we don't have enough of that, right? So you don't feel well. Let's just put it that way. You don't feel well, even if you weren't on fentanyl or heroin, like you you still do not feel well. And post-acute withdrawal, typically acute withdrawals within the first two weeks, depending on what you were taking and how much. After that, your brain is still struggling to come back online. You may be dealing with anhedonia, inability to feel pleasure. You may be dealing with obsessive compulsive thoughts. You may be dealing with you know major stress and anxiety. Like A lot of things look like mental illness, diagnoses. And it can be anywhere from after that two weeks up to a year we see, not as often the year, but depending on what you were taking, if you were taking a lot of benzos and alcohol, it's going to take your brain a long time to restabilize whatever unresolved trauma you have, right? Because you just got sober, right? Because now you're just in that process, right? You're just starting. You have your pre-programmed ancient brain that's saying, go back to what you know, go back to what you know, you know how to do that, do that, right? Okay. Then you have the lack of awareness around how, you know, the skill set to really stay sober, maybe the community built up. And then you might have post-acute withdrawal syndrome. There are a lot of things working against you when you start getting sober, rather, which is not a reason why you can't do it, but there are definitely things to be aware of. And I love relapse prevention planning. Terrence Gorski is a guy who started Synapse which is a, an acronym. What he does is you write out this map, right? And you map a relapse. It's fascinating. It basically prompts you along the way in these little areas where you can see visually where things started to fall apart months earlier. And then you map it and you see, oh, I felt this way. Oh, this happened. Oh, and you look at this map when you're done with it and you can see what your triggers are. You can see what leads you to relapse. And then you go back and you take this map and you insert into it plans for what you'll do when you see it recur again. So for example, one of the plans that is part of the relapse mapping and part of the relapse prevention is we have have a person that we identify who we can trust and who wants to support us in recovery. And we tell them, hey, when I'm doing this and you invite them into this process, this signals that I'm in relapse. Here are the things that you can do to support me. You can show me this letter. You can invite me to do X, Y, Z. So you, we bring other people into the process and we also have an action plan for what to do when we see any of the things happening on this map. I love that. What about, are there some things that 
maybe they're not universal, maybe they're just for you, or maybe they are for lots of people that are maybe some of the earlier steps in this sort of overall process of relapse that people don't recognize. Yeah, there's a couple things. So when I read that passage about the brain and how like if you put your hand on a hot flame, your hand is going to move away before you have the capacity to think through, oh, my hand is burning, right? It's just a reflex. Well, if you know that you have a tendency to put your hand over the flame and engage in that process, then stay the fuck away from the stove. <laughs> okay. So so one of the things, one of the things that you have to do and it's uncomfortable for a while is because in our heads our biggest fear is being different separate outcasted you know like we want acceptance we want love we want we want to be a part of feel a part of because part of why we started drinking and using is that we didn't feel a part of and part of what drugs and alcohol did for us is that they made us feel a part of so here we are having to make ourselves feel separate from i had to not put myself in a lot of places where i would be experimenting with my quote unquote willpower that's a terrible idea you don't do that don't go somewhere where that you know it's it's like if we wanted to go on a date with someone and we didn't want to hook up with him, you'd like not shave your legs to try to keep yourself from hooking up with them or something along the lines. It fucking never works. But um, but you know what does work is like not going somewhere where you can hook up with someone. If you're in a bedroom with someone, it's like you think your shave unshaven legs is going to be the thing. I really did. I really thought that was going to be a barrier. I was wrong. But you know what is a barrier is staying in the coffee shop, right? Like don't go to someone's house. Don't be in those situations. Like the analogy here is you just, you, if the place that you're going, that thing, whatever it is you're trying to, if, you know, if it's sex, if it's drugs, if it's alcohol, whatever, don't go to the place where it is unless you have a really good reason to be there. And if you have a really good reason to be there, like it's a work event. You have a plan going in and you bookend someone, you talk to someone before you go in, you talk to someone when you leave. And someone who's been through the experience you're having, someone who has recovery experience and knowledge and can help you come up with a plan. It's a lot of asking for help, which we don't like to do. But the biggest thing that I see people do is that they underestimate their disease and they overestimate their recovery. They walk into a family reunion and everybody's drinking and it's high stress and they don't have a great plan and they don't have an exit plan. Everybody you know, looks like they're having fun and you feel left out. And then next thing you know, you're drinking. So the skills that you learn, the reason why they, they say, you know, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, or they talk about getting a sponsor, working the steps or whatever equivalency that is in life ring or smart recovery or or whatever program you're participating in, that is your insurance. You're taking out insurance against your disease and you take out insurance every single day. It's a daily thing. You build it up and it's a mistake to put yourself in situations, especially in the beginning, where you're going to be testing a muscle that isn't that big yet. And this is a muscle, a recovery muscle is something that you build over time and uh, it takes time to get time. Do you feel like you have particular thoughts that start creeping in that are really at the very, very infancy of this kind of thing? Like, What do they sound like for you? We call it... K-Fuck Radio. And K-Fuck Radio starts to say... 
I don't know. These people are kind of weird. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? I was so young when that happened. Maybe I was just too stressed. Maybe it was because of my trauma. And of course, this is a normal reaction trauma. And now because it's X amount of time later, I'll be fine. Oof. Maybe I overreacted. Maybe it was an overreaction. Maybe they overreacted. Maybe these people want me to do all this weird stuff. I don't want to do that. Why am I doing this again? Or things like thoughts I've had long-term into recovery around like struggling with eating disorder of like, if I drink again, and I have to get sober again, I know how to get sober. But if I have to deal with my eating disorder, I don't know how to do that. And so it would be easier to drink and get loaded and deal with that because then that would be the forefront. I've had thoughts where where I'm so my life is so stressful and so many people rely on me and I feel like the only grown up within a mile, which is also laughable that I would be a grown up, but that's true. It'll be like, like it's just feels too much. And I think to myself, if I drank, no one could rely on me. I'm not even thinking I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just thinking like, if I drank, every single person in my life would no longer rely on me. And I would now be unreliable, which would be a positive thing because the pressure would come off me. And then people would want, people would step in to help me. You know, when you are, and and I know a lot of other women who've been in this situation where it's like when people see that you're competent, they don't believe that you'll break or that you'll fall apart or, you know, and so you'll be asking for help as a competent person. And they're like, you got this, you got this. And you're like, you're telling them, no, I don't got (laughs) this, you know, and people don't believe you. Again, these things are small for me, but they're just passing, you know, with mommy Wang culture, like, oh, I'm missing a tool for motherhood. Like I'm missing it. Like I'm not equipped because I don't have, you know, wine as, as a instant relief. It would be so much easier if I just drank with them and then I wouldn't be the only one not drinking or say you want to get back into a relationship. And you're like, if I drank with them, then we would have that bond again or 10,000 other little tiny thoughts that you know, that are part of the mapping process too, when you're mapping them to see, oh, I noticed that when I am started down this road, I start to think these are the types of thoughts that start to pass my mind. I'm not in your head, but I can imagine that maybe some of the like relief kinds of ones maybe feel like the loudest songs on the station. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think certainly now, certainly now those are the loudest. Like I don't really worry about, you know, I got sober at 19 and it was very, my sobriety then is very different than it is now. And the concerns I had at 19 are very different than I had. You know, I was very, I wanted to be able to move freely in the world at 19. I wanted to be able to have real life fun experiences in sobriety. Whereas now it is the relief from this big life that I've built because of my recovery, because of my sobriety. But everyone needs relief. And the drugs and alcohol provided an instant relief. And many people do get relief momentary relief from alcohol and drugs and it doesn't ruin their life. And that looks a lot easier than what I have to do to get relief, which is a much more, you know, self-reflective process, a routine based, like there's so many different things and it's not as fast. And and so then I feel sorry for myself and I want to, you know, why can't I blah, blah, blah. And then I also look back and I go, God, that was so long ago. My eating disorder, my experience with eating disorder has been, and I, I truly believe that one of the reasons reasons why this sounds silly, but I believe I have gratitude for my eating disorder as much as it tortures me because it keeps me sober because it is so reflective of the voice from my drinking. I don't know that I would be sober if my eating disorder did not show me on a regular basis 
how serious my alcoholism is. And so I know that it's alive and well. Everything about me and my life looks so different than it did at 19. I think I could easily convince myself, had that not been the case, that this is that things are different now. Can you speak to like what those processes are that provides relief for you? I think people think having a community is a nice to have. It's not a nice to have. It's a must have. It's not optional. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert. It doesn't matter if you don't like people. It's still not optional. Like you can't make it sanely through what we're talking about without other people. And if you try, then you will end up two ways, drunk or miserable or both. I've seen it over and over and over again. Isolation breeds alcoholism. Connecting with other people, picking up the phone, texting, whatever, whatever it is, writing, journaling, exercise. You know, I, Sometimes I'll just hop on the bike and just get my heart rate up and get those endorphins going. Meditation is something that I've learned to do in my later years. I used to do a lot like really intense yoga. And that was great. I would go to the beach. I would go sit in the sun, anything, go get a massage, get my nails done. Like the relief is found for me in anything that kind of engages my spirit is pleasurable in a different way. You know, for moms, a lot of this has to be scheduled. What I find people do is they think that the time to take care of themselves is going to appear out of nowhere. It's not. So you have to schedule that and you're going to get pushback. There's always pushback about... This is it never ceases to amaze me when people are like, you need to take care of yourself. And then you make an appointment or whatever it is, you spend money to take care of yourself. And it's like, but not like that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know like everybody, everybody wants you to take care of yourself as long as it's not inconvenient. And like, you just have to be inconvenient sometimes. And that's... You don't have the alcohol or the quick thing. And that's, that's okay. If you have a very busy life where a lot of people rely on you scheduling your relief in will help you in those moments where it would be difficult to find it. I feel like I run into a lot of people who just like can't do that for themselves or, you know, their own self-care, their own things like that end up coming last. Do you have any thoughts that can help them get around that? If you're in recovery from addiction, you'll hear this and it is true as annoying as it is, I'm going to say it because it's true. Anything you put before your recovery, you will lose anything. Your children, your husband, your business. I think the hardest thing for me was realizing that if I put my children before my recovery, I would lose. Like that seemed impossible. And then I did it. Then I did it for years of putting my children before my recovery. And I got really close to drinking and it scared the shit out of me. And I realized that that is what I had done as because I, because I had little kids and that's what you do. You, you're a mom, you come last. And the, the reality is if anything you put before your recovery, you will lose is because if you don't put your recovery first, you'll get loaded. And if you get loaded, guess what? All that shit goes out the window. It may not go out the window right away. It may take time. And you know, it may look different than it used to. All those things are also true. But if you're truly someone who has this disease, illness, whatever you want to call it, mental strangeness, whatever, people call it all sorts of things. If you are someone who really has that, you will lose anything you put before your recovery. And so when I hear that, when I think of that, it doesn't really seem like an I don't have time. 
So let's say that tomorrow you relapsed. What is the first thing that you're doing? Uh, co- <laughs> cocaine? <laughs> What's the? We have a menu like, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or this is this is like like what do you mean? Like <laughs> you're in Jamaica. Okay. It's all it's all on I a tray. It. It's all I'm, on a tray. Yeah. What's it's the first thing I'm doing? <laughs> I'm gonna go left to right. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Uh, it'll be who it'll be what who when where that'll be are you offering i don't know i mean i'm really interested in four loco (laughs) they've come out with all these new alcohols since i got sober i'm like what is that (laughs) i'm yes all of it answer d all of of the above all the above end of episode and maybe i'll hit a winery Wine Bandit is on the loose in Napa Valley. <laughs> Curfew has been implemented. Martial law has been declared <laughs> yes, in the streets. Exactly. <laughs> Possible nude mother <laughs> running southbound. Feral, do not approach. <laughs> <laughs> she has the grapes. She, thinks, she believes she is making her own brand of wine. Oh, my stomach hurts. Oh, oh. <laughs> she may tell you she's selling wrapping paper for Christmas, but rest assured, it's July. Don't believe her. You are not going to receive a single magazine that you've signed up for. Not a one. Not a one. Oh, Oh, God. God. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, okay. So after After the Jamaican massacre, as it's known. (laughs) As it's widely known. As finally known. It's in the history books. It's down. So I make it back from Napa and Jamaica. Yeah, you get back somehow. That story's for another day. <laughs> she has built herself a flotation device, <laughs> a craft, if you will. It's a flotation craft of kilos. <laughs> she said no one will ever find it. So we've made it back on our homemade flotilla. And uh, and we got to pick up the pieces. Where, where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> 911. Um, you know, I think the way that I drink and use is like straight up self-destruction. Some people really try to keep it together. And like, I don't attempt to keep it together. I attempt to not keep like, that's, it's like my, you know, it's my license to lose my shit, right? It's just, that's part of the uh, allure for me is that I don't have to keep my shit together. For me personally, I would probably end up going to detox and then being somewhere for a period of time so that I could get my head straight. And then I would, I would do outpatient. I mean, I would literally do the same. I would start going to meetings. I would take a lot of vitamin B, vitamin B12 and try to get my brain coming back online. I would, I would work with naturopathic doctor or of the sort and do blood, urine, stool testing to see where my brain was, like what kind of support. Because there's a lot of stuff you can do brain support wise. A lot of things you can take. John Umhow in his episode talks about fish oil and how much that supports the brain, especially people coming out of having been using. So I would do a lot of those things. I think those things are you know really tangible things you can do to get better. I would just put my life back together piece by piece the way that I keep it now. I mean, it's I would do the same things I do now because that's what's worked. I mean, I am not a person 
who looked like they were going to, things were going to work out for. And the reason that they have is that I did what I, I'm not, I'm not a fucking genius. They, I did what they said to do and I did them imperfectly and it still worked. And I think that that is the place where I get enough pain and then I get willing to, to take the suggestions. And so that's how I have put my life and I've put my life back together. I've done everything in a relapse except drink, like all of it, all the shit, whatever it was, I did it. And all the way down to, I just didn't pick up. And I had to put my life back together from that quote unquote relapse. It was a bottom basically without a drink. And I've had to put my life back together from that point, even though I didn't take a drink. So same skills, same stuff. What about any last thing that you want to say to somebody maybe who's in this, who's in it right now, who's really, who's struggling, who's trying to figure this out? I think that a really great place for people to start is to look up PAWS, pause post-acute withdrawal syndrome. I think it's really important. It's not something that a lot of people know about. There are actual physical and mental symptoms that people experience that are as a result of your brain trying to regulate itself. And it's not, you're not doing anything wrong. It's not you being messed up or that it'll never work for you. It's, 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 you're physically repairing the neural structures. And I think if more people knew that and knew what kind of supplements they could take to support that process and move it along, that might be good. Cause I think people get really down on themselves. They're like, why do I still feel this way? This is, you know, this is not fun. I do not want to do this. I'm only getting worse, whatever it is. So I would say if you're struggling, look up post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Also look into doing some trauma therapy. There's a lot of trauma that lives in your tissues. Again, The Body Keeps the Score is a great book that talks about all the trauma that you know your issues are in your tissues, as they say. And it talks about all the, the stored trauma and that can make it really hard not to run back to that chaotic home nest, you know, that we were talking about with the mice. Like we have science to show that people return to what they are comfortable with, what they know. And so you may be doing that. Your brain may be really struggling and you may not know what that is. And so going to therapy and helping to understand that that chaos brings you alive. Talking them through, just thinking them in your head is actually not enough, even if you're thinking the right thoughts. Talking, the act, the act of talking something out is something that's been done for thousands and thousands of years that we have used as a therapeutic tool to process things that have happened in our lives, traumas and other love and, and, and all sorts of our emotions. I recommend looking at, this is a bit of a puzzle and you're puzzle may be, oh, my adrenal glands are totally shot and I have really bad trauma. And I am, turns out I'm actually allergic to something I'm eating or I have mold in my house. Or I mean, there's so many things that people discover when they get sober and all of those are affecting your mental state and your level of agitation and your need for relief. And the more agitated you are, the more relief you'll need on a regular basis. So finding ways you can get that and reaching out to someone who either works in the field or you know, finding people who know about recovery resources, right? Like that's what we do. We have so many people on the planet who have specialties and things who know where the resources are. If I have a plumbing issue, I'm calling the plumber. Like I'm calling, I'm going to reach out to people who know about plumbing because 
it's a specialty issue. You're not born with that knowledge. And it's the same thing with addiction and recovery. You're not born with that knowledge. So why do you think that it's going to come to you out of nowhere in a dream? Like it's normal and natural and useful to reach out to people for those resources. So I highly encourage you to reach out to someone who can help you navigate. I think that that's really helpful. We're rooting for you if you're in this situation, 100%. Absolutely. If you have questions that you'd like for us to talk about on the show, we've got a couple places to send you. And I wanted to make... this Since these Q&A episodes are a newer thing, I felt like it was probably important for me to say a couple things. We won't mention your name. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. If you're asking a question, we're not going to go, hey, here's all your personal information. Here's where you live. And here's all this sorts of thing. We would really be using the question just so that it's more specific to something that's happening in this particular community. So I wanted to throw that out there. We promise we won't blow your spot up. Ashley, if they want, they want to ask you a question, where should they go to ask you a question? Please follow us on our Instagram, which is courage to change underscore podcast. And you can direct message us there. Both Scott and I see those messages. You can also email me directly at ashley at lionrockrecovery.com or you can email podcast at lionrock.life or you can find me on TikTok, Ashley Loeb Blessing Game. TikTok. And if you want to see Ashley starting some of the hottest new dance trends on TikTok, (laughs) check her out. The kids, the teens eat it up. They're all trying to do the Ashley dance challenges. You know, it's very exciting. I call it the flotilla. (laughs) (laughs) all right well if you're listening we're with you in spirit we're glad you tuned in and uh, ashley anything you want to leave them with yeah just don't give up relapsing can feel like you're failing and uh it's a Oh, it's a brutal, brutal feeling. And I just want people to remember, you know, I had a lot of relapses and, and, you know, it's not how many times you fall on your face. It's how many times you get up. If you fall down six times and get up seven, that's what counts. Just keep getting up. And if you have a loved one who keeps falling on their face, try, 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 try to support them into getting, keep getting up and not focusing on feeling like a failure because it's really hard to try again when you feel like all you do is fail. So keep coming back one fucking day at a time, one minute at a time and reaching out to people. And it, it does get, it gets better and then it gets really good. So I hope that's helpful. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.